Welcome back to a special episode of the Dave Gold Evolve podcast, where I interview industry leaders in the spiritual, dating, and business world to help men truly evolve. My guest today is Lazarus Kalfas. Lazarus is from Thessaloniki, a city very deep and dear to my heart, where I was able to change my life, or at least get started. And Lazarus is going to be talking about some eye-opening topics today, from consciousness to time travel to awareness. And we're really grateful to have you here today. So thank you so much for coming on, Lazarus. Thank you, Dave, for having me. I'm also glad that uh, we get a chance to have this discussion openly. Um, and for everyone to see as well. And I hope uh, it's uh, valuable for, for the guys and everyone who is interested about that stuff. So what's up, everyone? So just a quick shout out to our sponsor at the Self Love Army. Um, go to the Facebook group Self Love Army if you want a really eye-opening and intimate experience. Now, Lazarus, I want to start off by learning more about your story in personal development and where you started and how you've gotten to the place where you are now. So take it away. So um, if I take as a start the, the usual uh, place of my of, of like someone's journey that he started consciously trying to, to develop himself, then I would go probably at the age of uh, 18 to 19 when I went through like uh, a very uh, dark period of um, depression. And uh, it was basically a period that uh, I started having um, um, my first realization that I had been suppressing throughout many years of my life before. Um, so if I start from there, then um, what brought me in, it was uh, basically reaching the rock bottom. That's how, that's how I, would, I would perceive it. And uh, to me, this looked like um, a lot of isolation, isolating myself socially, um, to feeling uh, anxious in social environments, feeling like kind of paranoid, feeling judged by people, but also at the same time craving uh, people. So that for me was kind of like uh, the rock bottom. And then I had a breakthrough um, soon after that summer, uh, I think it was uh, 2013, 2014, 2013, I would say, that uh, I, I found for the first time kind of like that I can speak to people openly and I can speak to, to, to random people most of all. So I was, uh, after an experience that I had with my, uh, with my, with my cousin where we kind of had um, a night after his seven-year breakup, uh, he had a seven-year lesson and he broke up. And then I had also those many years of suppression that were coming to kind of uh, suffocating me and making me feel very close. We had one night that we kind of like uh, opened up to each other. And somehow we ended up in two days mayhem in uh, some party, camping, speaking to, to everyone, especially like girls. And then that somehow felt like freeing to me. And that was a moment, of, like very pivotal moment of realizing that I had been suppressing socially. Uh, throughout my whole life. So um, the background was that I, I grew up as an introvert, like fully introverted person, but with a lot of interest for people. So I remember myself even like as a, uh, I don't know, like in kindergarten, that I like to watch to, to observe other kids. I like to like, 
understand what others are doing. And uh, I was taking a lot of this observer kind of like position in uh, the um, social dynamics of the hidden garden, the neighborhood kids playing. But I also felt very vulnerable for them looking at me or uh, them understanding what I'm doing or what I'm thinking. And uh, it was very subtle. I wasn't aware of that back then. But when I look back in retrospect, I could realize that this was happening throughout all my childhood, basically. And I was also a lonely, lonely child. So I grew up spending a lot of time by myself. And this created this kind of like introverted, but also people, people aware and people curious personality. And um, because of that sensitivity, apparently I accumulate a lot of uh, fear for people looking at, like seeing through me, but also uh, a lot of um, the ability to see through them. I had many friends throughout the years, but I always did better with one-on-one, -on -one, kind of like having a best friend or a girlfriend. I had girlfriends from quite early, like from since I, had, I was like uh, 13, 14. But then when I had my first also kind of like complete sexual relationship. And uh, I always felt I was suppressing there, even with my friends, even with my girlfriends. Like I was holding something back. I was always kind of like protecting and suppressing and isolating myself kind of. Uh, so there, I had I was through periods or like in, a, in my teenage years that I went through uh, lies and trying to pretend I'm someone and partially conscious, partially subconscious. So there were a lot of those things that are coming up and I was becoming, I was getting glimpses of awareness of them, but then I would, for, I would forget and would fall back into this, like kind of um, avoiding real connection with people. Uh, and then when I was 18, 19, that was kind of like a breakthrough when I, when I was feeling that all of my relationships were kind of like fake and not really fulfilling for me. And then I had this breakout, breakout with my cousin. Like we basically um, went out and started speaking to people randomly, just, just mostly for, make, for making each other laugh. That's how it started. We were basically in a camping for three, for three days and we were just speaking to random people and drinking with random people and partying with random people just to make uh, one another laugh. And we we're just like saying a lot of bullshit stories and trolling and all that, but it felt very freeing. And when I came back to my city, this all Nikki that you mentioned, I couldn't really come back to my social environment. I had a girlfriend at the time. I had some friends at the time that was hanging out from the university, from uh, from all the, from people I knew uh, from back my my hometown. But I couldn't really feel inspired to to keep hanging out with those people. And in a few months I broke up, and then I started just exploring social environments. For me, for me, this this is how it started. It started like I felt really suppressed. Uh, then it wasn't it wasn't interesting anymore after I discovered that oh there is this I can just start speaking to people and just can start meeting any, everyone or anyone that I want to meet and uh, I started I started experimenting with that so I started going to parties I started going out a lot by myself because I wasn't really inspired to keep to keep going out with the people I knew and um, yeah I was basically the first environment that I, that I felt comfortable doing that was house parties people parties that people were organizing in their flats like mostly students university students and I would go there just finding like from a friend of a friend and just finding from through just the network ahead at the time uh, who is doing a party but after like a few months of doing that uh, I started even going to parties like un uninvited just like seeing a balcony with people and I knew they were partying I would knock the doors and the neighbor and I would go in and just like start meeting everyone so for me this was like a big revelation just putting myself in situations like this and meeting people and just like uh 
I was feeling free. But at the same time, the same period, I started becoming aware of my anxiety around people. Because uh, up, to, up to this point, I was feeling massive anxiety, but I wasn't really aware of it. It was, for me, it was the default. It was, that's how it is. But at that time, because I had, uh, as a comparison times that I wasn't feeling anxious, that I was actually flowing and communicating really good with people, um, the, the moments that I was, that I was stressed, they were really, really uh, making me a big impression. And uh, just to give an example, there would be like, for example, situations that I would go just by myself in a random party with random people. And I would feel like the need to drink, first of all, to warm up and just not have that much like of self-conscious um, state. And then still, I would feel anxious enough to go to the bathroom, take a break and relax and then go back and start meeting people and talking to people. So I was having this like, again, once again, it came this like conflicted relationship with social uh, interactions, uh, even though it was right after my breakthrough that it was like, okay, I can just start meeting people. And what, it took what, a lot of my... What, what is a breakthrough? What does a breakthrough mean to you? So basically throughout the years of my teenage years and up to this point, I felt I was stuck in something. So when I say I was suppressed socially, I felt it felt it was stuck in something. And to me, breakthrough is basically breaking free from that. So it felt like then um, in this summer, uh, I kind of like broke free from that, but then still it kind of came back to me in the form of anxiety, in the form of like feeling the judgment of people in those, in those parties, in those environments. And I really became aware of that back then. I became aware of that, oh, there is, I, st I started meeting people, but there is this anxiety that holds me back. I want to make a good impression. Many times there is this feeling of judgment, fear of judgment, fear of rejection. Uh, I was meeting a lot of girls uh, already. And um, did, did, other people, did other people tell you how you should cope with that anxiety? Like that you should go and talk to someone, that you should take drugs, um, medicine, or you know, that you should meditate. What, what was what was going through your mind as you tried to cope with that anxiety as you were growing up? Well, the thing is like at the time, uh, I was completely by myself. So I didn't have a self-development network. I didn't have uh, any, any direction. I didn't have a mentor. I was just by myself exploring something that felt more meaningful than uh, what I was doing before, basically. Just going to university and having my set, my, um, my group of friends and just like, it felt more meaningful to go and explore. And it was just like purely out exploring. I didn't know pickup community. I didn't know self-development. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I wasn't meditating back in the day. So it's like, I was just, I just like dropped myself in it and felt good and started and start falling. Uh, very intuitive, um, like um, start. Then after a certain point, I, I spent like six months just doing that. And, and uh, after a certain point, I started exploring my, my anxiety, my anxiety started to become more interesting than the, the, the people in a way. I mean, like people were always exciting, the exciting part of this thing, because it, it was always fun when I would actually break free from that anxiety or that fakeness and actually make some, some cool connections with people and have fun. And I don't know. Uh, but the, mo the moments of anxiety at the beginning of the night start troubling me more and more. And around that time, after like six months of doing that self-exploration, I met a few people who were in the community, the, like the pickup community. And I went to like a few gatherings of them. And so, like, they, they found me online. I was just, I got in a forum that it seemed like similar to what I was doing. 
and I was interested to to learn how they're approaching it because they were saying a lot of mentalities about how to meet people and you know this kind of like idea of th there is like this set of techniques uh, it was quite it felt quite uh, intriguing at the time but then when I met with those people I actually got like quite disappointed because we were just meeting in a coffee place and we're just like talking with each other and they wanted just to go to parties or explore and experiments but it was one person who was actually really much into that and then for the and then uh we we actually uh tagged along so we we started hanging out and we really uh we, he was teaching me some stuff i was thinking some other stuff so he would get me out in the day and we start approaching people in the day which i wasn't really doing at the time and we were doing it sober which i wasn't really doing at the time either because i started this like just naturally exploring I was drinking, I was going to parties, the places that people go and socialize, but he was coming from a background of like uh, RSD and uh, cold approach pickup. And he started introducing me to all those concepts. And uh, that was when I really dived into this uh, culture and, this, and I learned everything and I started testing everything. So I think my the big advantage I had was that I, I was testing right away and I was basically doing this full time already. Uh, I had completely dropped out, like unofficially I had dropped out of university already, just because this was feeling so intriguing and so uh, meaningful. Uh, I wasn't losing any opportunity to, to study, test, experiment. So uh, we started with this like more classical, technical type of stuff from, uh, from the community, but so it kind of felt less interesting soon. You did, you did drop out of university eventually? Eventually, yeah. Eventually, yeah. But at the time, it was kind of like I was one, one, uh, one foot in, one foot out. It was basically like I the whole day was just paying attention to uh, exploring my, my, my social interactions, exploring myself, exploring my anxiety, exploring my beliefs. What were you studying? So I was studying electrical engineering, electrical and computer engineering. At Aristotle? At Aristotle? Yeah, 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 yeah. The, um, yeah. Which was actually a really good university, like at least my uh, my department. But I wasn't feeling, which I was interested in initially, but I wasn't feeling any like studying. It felt like this thing I was discovering slowly it was somehow very very intriguing for me. Yeah. And uh, after this one, after the first year, uh, I think it was one of the most pivotal moments for me, uh, diving deeper into emotional intelligence and eventually spiritual, which was uh, the realization. Uh, that uh, in different emotional states, I was having a completely different set of beliefs. I was seeing the world in a completely different way. I was seeing the uh, I, I was in a different reality, pretty much. When I when I when well, I encountered for the uh, uh, um, Lazarus, what was your relationship with women like at the time when you were getting into this? So the first year, as I said, like before, when I when I got into it, I was uh, I had the relationship. Generally, I will I had relationships almost continuously since I was in uh, basically fourteen, early high school. Uh, I had every year I would have a relationship. I but the Greeks, the Greeks have more sex per capita than any other country in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was also from a from from a small kind of town, so people there we were having. There were quite a few people were having sex from early, like teenage years. And um, but the thing is, like, I wasn't feeling that, that the, those relationships were something I wanted uh, to keep. It was mostly like things that would, it would come and I would kind of compromise with it. And I was like, yeah, this is like it would be this girl that we would make out. And then it, one would bring the other. It wasn't really choosing to be with that person. It wasn't really feeling inspired to, to 
to build that connection or anything. It was just like very mature, uh, just tagging along basically. And then for some reason, creating an ego and attachment and kind of, I didn't like it. Uh, every one of my relationships up to this point would, would end up in some sort of, some form of like feeling trapped, liking other girls and not be um, like, not speaking to them, not, not, uh, not meeting them. And, feeling that I shouldn't because I have a relationship, but deep down there was actually a deeper issue. So you said that, um, this is what you said, you said our pain shows us our wounds. So would you say that you had a traumatic relationship to love at the time? And if so, what kind of triggered that? Well, that's a long story, but uh, yeah. So basically from very early, I had, uh, some um, experiences that I came to approach later, some uh, experiences of uh, abandonment, some experiences of like, and I'm talking about like very early, like four or five years old. Uh, and I'm talking about experiences that would, you know, somebody wouldn't recognize because they were not that intense, but for, for me as a kid, apparently they were. So there is one very particular experience that uh, I discovered at some point in which I was with my mother in a, in a school event. And uh, we had two seats in the audience. So there, there were like many chairs and we, and we had two chairs and it would be a play, some kids play, something like that, you know, like in a, in a state. And uh, an older kid for me, I was in kindergarten at the time, like very, very young. An older kid for me from the elementary school would uh, took the one seat and uh, it was only two seats for me and my mom. And, uh, and my mom didn't take the seat back. So she didn't really like kind of stand up for it. And I felt kind of not exactly abandonment, but kind of like I was not protected, something like that. It was, it's very funny because those things, the way you experience them as a, as a child is completely different from the way you understand and experience them as an, as an adult. So for me at the time, apparently that was quite big. Because, uh, and I didn't remember it, I just came to it last year or the, maybe the year before, but it basically, it, I basically come to it and, re- and I came to the point to release it just from looking and working in, in, my, in the projections of my past. Uh, another experience was um, basically in my, again, like maybe even earlier than that, I was in uh, a family, my, my father's family, uh, one of the father's family houses. So it was like my father's aunt and somebody from their family told me, kind of like teased me. I was like very little, was maybe first year of kindergarten. I was very shy as a, as a kid, as I said before, and teased me about the girls. So somehow somebody told me, I don't remember exactly who, but told me like, oh, how is it going with the girls? Blah, 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 blah. And I was feeling very uncomfortable for that because apparently I was feeling something for the girls in the kindergarten. I remember I was pulling their hair and stuff like that. And uh, somebody asked me, and then I felt I said, "No, no, the girls are disgusting." And it was like very little saying the girls are disgusting. I didn't mean it. I was feeling very shy about it for some reason, and um, you know I didn't remember that that memory either. Uh, but for some reason it affected me because um, a few months ago, like about six months ago, I had a very intense uh, experience uh, visiting that memory, in which I released and cried a lot for something like this that now as i'm saying it seems just funny to somebody teasing a kid so you know 
how those things work it's a big story how how those things work and why sometimes the mem those memories become this this blockage or this trauma that accumulates over the years so uh, let's dive into this because i know a lot of your work has to do with going back into someone's past and figuring out what kind of trauma that they've experienced and discovering it and learning from it and i guess letting it go so something I thought maybe we would bring up a little bit later on in the, in our conversation today, but I think it's relevant right now. So, so let's talk about it. And um, this topic of time travel. So yeah. So to, the concept to into, of movement between certain points in time and, and Stephen Hawking stated that he had experimental evidence that time travel is not possible. So what does it mean when you are running these time travel um, lessons and, uh, uh, you know, experiments in your coaching or, or practices? Yeah, before we get into that, I would like to just say a little bit about how we, we ended up, how I ended up getting into, interested into it. Because from, from what I've said so far, um, it's pretty common for somebody to have those revelations, uh, like feeling suppressed and breaking through, either if it comes from a breakout, breakup with a with a girlfriend, or if it comes with like some intense experience in his life. But the big different thing that led me to time travel, led me to trauma healing, uh, led me to um, doing this type of work and raising the awareness of people in connection, which I basically do. Um, it was, I think, for me, a very pivotal moment when when I realized uh, that. In different emotional states, uh, we see completely different things. We we understand completely different things because at the time, uh, my first approach to self development was coming from a place of first improving my externals, so improving my, I don't know, like my body, improving my the way of communicating to people, improving the things I say, improving the things I understand about the way they think. So, very logical, very external approach of trying to like you can also call it red pill. It's, it's basically trying to find the, the tricks and the hacks and the solutions and the best, the best technical uh, approach. Then it moved into um, approaching my mentalities and the way I perceive things, the way I filter things. And again, I don't know if that makes sense, but we started working with beliefs. So it was me and this guy that I said about and we were just experimenting daily with our beliefs, trying to figure out beliefs, trying to document beliefs, trying to see how something is a, a limiting belief or a blocking belief. And we were approaching it in this very static way, like you have a set of beliefs and that's it. But the really, really uh, big pivotal moment for me was when I realized that I don't have only one set of beliefs, and you will understand how this connects with the time travel, but in different emotional states I am, I have different sets of beliefs, some many times conflicting. With each other so let's say when you are uh, very tired and very kind of pessimistic about life then you when you look at life and when you look at your future and when you look at the things you try to achieve and your goals you believe that it's probably not going to work okay when you get a, a big hit and you feel kind of in, inadequate and insecure and like or when you get a rejection you look at things and you believe that it's probably not working so you, you kind of selectively believe things based on how you feel. And that was very interesting for me. For, for many people, that's kind of like uh, assumed or it sounds small, but it wasn't a small thing. For me at the time, 
it helped me understand that there is like an insane depth uh, in our um, personality that we don't see because from one, one emotional state, we cannot remember how it is to feel in a different emotional state. Does it make sense what I'm saying or you want to elaborate? No, it makes a lot of sense, especially the fact that most people don't go down that rabbit hole that's completely unconscious and unexplored. And it's like, I'm not interested in understanding the why. I just accept that that is just the way that it is. And then I'm going to completely neglect, you know, what could be, or maybe understanding what is behind why this is happening, these limiting beliefs that shape our reality. Exactly. And, but for me, it was very interesting because at the time I was fascinated with uh, emotional intelligence. I, was start, I started to become like really fascinated with emotional intelligence. After that point, I grew up very, uh, in a very logical mentality. Imagine that I ended up going in engineering and I was really a math freak and I were like, at least in there, I really love math and I really love logical stuff and strategies and all this work. But then from that moment, I realized there is another depth of, parallel set of rules because every belief if you if in every emotional state you are you have a different belief system or a different sub personality let's say then you have like different rules like that kind of work par- in parallel in your mind in your in your perception of the reality of the world and uh, for um and because i was fascinated i was trying also to solve the anxiety issue this gave me a whole new, uh, basically, path to, to approach it. A whole, a whole new paradigm of path to approach, a whole, a whole new uh, place to look at. And uh, after years that I met also uh, Chris and uh, Niels and, uh, we, and the, the Social Prime started, they had come together to similar conclusions from their own journey. And actually, Niels and Chris, they had put together this idea of uh, looking back into the past uh, to uh, early childhood memories uh, that created basically a negative self-perception of your self-worth or that that damages your your sense of self-worth. And um, that idea that maybe those those memories accumulate over the years and build more memories of that paradigm. Imagine like if you're in a certain state, uh, you tend to see the world from from those filters. And then if uh, something else negative happens or something else that reminds you, you will also filter it through the same filters. So let's say you have a negative experience. uh, You have a soaking kind of traumatic experience when you're four years old. And then you go to another environment when you're like seven and that environment for some reason reminds you the first one. So you kind of create a correlation between that memory and the previous memory, if that makes sense. So uh, the, the idea came from uh, one that as a kid, you're like a clean slate and it doesn't make sense to have all those inadequacy issues when you are like, uh, when you're a clean slate, you don't feel this hole in your self-worth and that uh, we basically uh, build on top of um, a trauma. We build on top of a, of a, um, a perception of ourselves as being not good enough. Uh, we build on top of like a hole. We, the hole gets bigger basically instead of 
getting smaller. And now the whys and the hows kind of started opening up later, but it started from this very basic idea in 2017. Uh, we gathered up and we started actually practicing this. And the guys first started practicing before me to friends and to each other. But then when we, when we came together in Budapest in 2017, we actually started running the programs there. And the method was uh, constantly evolving because um, we started realizing how to uh, follow better those uh, memories. So the, the method, just in a nutshell, what, we're, what we are doing is that we find uh, memories that you, that you feel recently or moments that you feel recently inadequate and you feel blocked and you feel those things coming up. Uh, those blockages or those uh, tr uh, traumatic perceptions of however you want to call them. And you follow them. Basically, you put your uh, someone in that state, that emotional state that I was talking about before that opens up a whole paradigm that's connected to that state. And then you follow back uh, those memories that are connected, that are correlated inside that emotional state. So the whole the work, the, the, the success of the work was heavily dependent on how much emotional we can make someone, uh, how, how, much emotional, how much of that emotional state we can bring to someone back. And um, that was also heavily dependent on how much, how much we can get into it and how, how emotional we can be and how empathetic we can be. And it was a lot of intuitive work. But the, the main method in the nutshell is like we just get someone in that emotional state uh, and also in a relationship of trust and that we can have that connection to, to guide him through because we get also in that experience and then guide him through uh, the memory, the trail of memories that are connected to that emotional state back to the very early um, part of his life that he felt it the first time. And now when you ask somebody, when did you feel the first time, you will not remember. When you ask somebody what happened in that, that period or what happened that was similar to that, you will not remember because those things are not, are not directly connected. They've been through a lot of mutation, basically. Like the experience, the first experience had been through a lot of mutation, but it always, always keeps a part of this emotional state inside it or like the, the emotional, first emotional signal. That feeling that it's basically I'm not good enough. But you can't just say to someone like, Phil, you're not good enough and just like tell me when you felt the first time because you will not remember. And that's why we go through a journey basically of, of memories. And with every layer of that journey, the person actually transfers to that age. So you see like when we're in, a, and that, it takes a lot of hours, but you see when we are in, a, in ages like five, six, uh, it's subtle, but the person thinks and perceives the world the same way he was perceiving when he was five, six. Where, where, where does this, is this like um, NLP or some shamanic healing or wh where is this coming from? I mean, the most, the most uh, similar therapy that you can find uh, is probably something called coherence therapy. And uh, it's basically a therapy that's based on a, on a quite new concept in, uh, in psychotherapy, which is called memory reconsolidation. And uh, they have similar, similar, approach to that. There is also a book uh, people can read if they're interested in methods like this. It's not exactly the time travel. I, I believe the time travel is like, it's better for the work I, I'm doing, like for the work uh, I'm doing with my students and the, the work that I believe people need in order to reach that place. But it's very similar principles. And the book that you can read is uh, Unlocking the Emotional Brain. 
and uh, it's a pretty dense book and it has a lot of um, terminology inside, but basically explains uh, how the perception of uh, therapy um, before the 21st century is like, and that uh, you can only replace patterns and you can only like cover problems and you can only just like but the hole and never really fill the hole uh, was actually uh, kind of false as a belief uh, since you can you can access those patterns you can access those sub personalities or those those parts of yourself that you see as symptoms and as problematic if you manage to go to the place they were created and perceive them from the angle you were perceiving them when you created them. Because all those issues that you see as we see as problematic, that we see as a limiting belief, as a blockage, they when they got created, the symptom was not a symptom, it was a solution. When, uh, when a person started feeling blank, when he was in a stressful social situation, he didn't do it to damage himself. When your, his system created it as a, as a coping mechanism. Because maybe if, he's, if he would say the wrong thing, his mother would like scream at him or slap him or whatever. So he created that, that method of approaching things. The person who feels like, like he needs a lot of attention and people don't give him enough attention and he needs to like complain and uh, I don't know, like blame others for that. This is not, this is a problem now in his adult life, but when he created it as a kid, uh, it was actually a very, very good solution which didn't get updated because there were parts that got suppressed. And uh, this, the, the way we approach it now, and there are a lot of modern approaches that uh, the mainstream therapy hasn't cut up yet. Uh, the way we approach it now is by accessing that part that, got, that created that issue, bringing awareness to it. So we update and process something that it's kind of hold back. Uh, but in the time travel specifically, yeah. This is emotional. This is what you talk about when you say emotional awareness. Yes, it's it's uh, basically experiential awareness. That's that's maybe a better word than emotional awareness. It's basically becoming aware of that very experience that he had when uh, he was uh, when he created it, and then there is. Um, Basically, in order to happen this memory reconsolidation that I told you the concept, which is basically classing the two sides and the one that makes more sense, it kind of like um, gets, um, you know, gets on top. Um, basically, the adult side, the side that you see the world right now and you, you deep down, you know uh, what's happened, what you need, and the other side that created the... Um, that defense mechanism that kind of like becomes a symptom now or obstacle to you. So in order to do that, uh, you need to bring the person in that place that has an experiential awareness of how he was when he, when he created it. And in time travel specifically, what we also do um, when uh, throughout the journey of the time travel, you have a lot of uncomfortable feelings. So it's basically a journey through uncomfortable feelings. And in my, uh, in my program, when I coach someone, I take, basically a, a good amount of time uh, teaching him how to um, be open to those uncomfortable feelings, how to work through them and how to become aware of them. 
And I do this through guidance and through specific practices that I take. So when we when the time comes for the time travel, he's, um, his system is open enough to explore those uncomfortable feelings. Because when I say uncomfortable, it might be like a very mild word for it. Some of those experiences are really painful. And I'm talking about experiences that like, not only he will, he will cry and he will feel pain, I will feel pain guiding him through it. Like the, the experience is very intense as a, as a process. So uh, going through those uncomfortable feelings and reaching that very first place that they started or, or one of those uh, routes, we step back behind that, that experience and we experience self-love, the unconditional self-love that you, that you felt before. And then, and then when, we, when we manage to do this and we step back in, the person gets this uh, heightened emotional awareness and experiential awareness of that, of that thing. And, and this allows him to process um, the root and as, an, as a byproduct of that process everything else. So we go again through all of those other traumatic memories, basically the, the things that got built up on the root and we reprocess them. I helped him reprocess them, ask, uh, guiding his attention and asking him specific questions for him to see. Now the whole, the whole approach and generally the whole approach in this, in this way of coaching uh, is always experiential. So it's never me saying something really. I always guide with questions and just, but, but it has to, but I have to feel what is happening. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, like if you have any other question, but it's a quite intense process to explain because it's very experiential, very intuitive, and I can't really put it in, uh, uh, in just an easy and quick way for somebody to understand other than just we follow the, the, the traumatic memories that you have throughout your life, even the recent ones, and they create the trail that leads us to the actual wound. So the pain uh, is just a signal to lead you to a wound. It's kind of like a compass for me. So let's say, um, let's give a kind of a practical example right now. Someone is stuck in a limiting belief. Let's say that they think it is um, wrong to approach someone in a natural setting and um, at the same time they, they could also um, think that there's no way that they can leave their home or leave their job or leave their relationship okay there's no way out so what do you say to someone like that well we first would explore uh, that feeling that this is impossible there is no way out without pressure we, we bring some, we would bring some awareness of that. And then gently would bring some awareness to the, to the back of back of that, the behind what's behind that. What's this thing that is happening when you do, uh, if you, if you try to imagine doing it, um, then I would recreate the experience slowly, uh, of that, that, that happens in the back, like that, that thing that he's afraid of. I would bring awareness in that of that pain for like a while. So it's not just like, oh, we're talking about it and that's it. It's really just giving him an assignment and, and directing his attention to it. Uh, I also teach a tool that uh, is introspective so he can start digging that stuff. 
And when when I feel he's ready, when I say he's ready to explore deeper, uh, and in the terms of the time travel, we would go back and we would look into experiences that um, the thing that he's afraid of kind of seemed to happen and really reinforce this defense because the that him believing that he cannot get out of the of his house or he cannot cannot leave his relationship or he cannot leave his job it's not uh it's not a blockage as we think of it we think of it as an obstacle but really what it was as i said before it was a solution at, at some point so it was a defense a, a protection and uh we go back to the point that we see what created this necessity for the protection. We help him experience that. And when he experiences that, he get, he loosens up a little bit that specific protection. Because the, the, the issue is that this protection came as a, as a good thing. Okay, it helped because it was overwhelming maybe at the time. He needed something to kind of close him off and feel, feel protected, not so vulnerable. But now it becomes an obstacle to him becoming vulnerable, him going for his passion, his purpose, connecting with people. So now he doesn't need it anymore. It actually kind of harms him. When he, when he experiences that, he has the opportunity to start letting go of that protection and replacing it with a completely different paradigm in which he can uh, now sustain and um, be okay being vulnerable. So uh, we do it progressively in a way that he's, uh, he starts to see um, that it's not this huge threat to be vulnerable. Uh, it's not this huge threat to be, to be open to things. And then at the same time, in parallel, we dive into that um, painful experience itself, leading back to the moment to the point that he started creating this defense allows him to process it and replace it with a more healthy way of, of approaching things, if that makes sense. But the, the time travel is a big part of it. I just want to make sure that I'm, that I'm understanding this correctly. So, so this is why people become defensive. This is why people get triggered, the source of their triggers. Yeah. Right? Yeah, basically. I mean, if I show you like just a little diagram, sure. uh, just to see a little bit what is happening uh, in the like when we reinforce and keep reinforcing and living through uh, this protection I mean it's it's pretty intuitive to understand for someone it's like you have your yourself normally when you are when you're following your passion so there is this kind of misconception about vulnerability like that that people perceive vulnerability as something that's not always good and the same thing is with honesty because honesty makes makes them feel vulnerable and the misconception is that the usually usually people perceive vulnerability as only the negative stuff the negative parts of vulnerability that vulnerability is showing your weakness and it is it is showing your weakness but vulnerability is also showing your creativity creativity is vulnerable vulnerable uh, leading your, your sexuality could your be sexuality. very vulnerable. Okay. Yes. I know that um, someone that uh, I've started to, to work more closely with over the last few months, this guy, Yuval, okay, who's an incredible sex expert, makes these posts 
and one a few days ago was about all of the taboo subjects related to sex. And I don't know if I would be able to make that kind of post on my social media because that would be so, so vulnerable in a sense. And it, it feels so like, so scary in a way. I, I mean, I'll just be filming a little selfie video or even just, you know, a question post that I want to get to know people's opinions. And even there, there are, there are feelings of anxiousness and vulnerability that come up. And I, and I understand that even on a deeper level with my students who don't even want to create an Instagram. They don't even want to take a picture out on the street. They don't want to make a post. They don't want to show any part of their life because they're so scared of being judged. They're so scared of the reaction that they're going to get from someone else. And the fact that maybe that they're going to get a, a negative reaction from someone and maybe yeah. it's not going to be perfect. And maybe it's going to be not showing them in their best light. And you know what? There is no such thing as, you know, perfect or best light. I'll make posts and I get a lot of negative feedback at times, which it shocks me. But at the same time, it, it, it also kind of smacks me in the face. And it's like, wake up. You have to remember that you're not going to connect with everyone. There are going to be some people that connect with your message. There are going to be some people that resonate, some people that they are going to respectfully respond in a manner that contributes to the conversation and contributes to the purpose and others that just want to troll. They just want to spout negativity and bring people down. And because of that, that vulnerability, okay, could be escalated. It could be even scarier than to go ahead and continue to make these posts. But I actually was, it's, you know, I was actually talking to, um, someone very close to me who is in the field of psychology. And she said that there is a psychological study done that people who respond negatively, okay, to a, a post and they, um, they hate, well, when other people respond negatively to them, it triggers them to continue that pattern, to mm. continue shaming others, to continue spouting negativity at others. Yeah, yeah, negativity is a, th this thing is totally addictive because you try to fill the hole we were talking about before with uh, basically trying to, to perceive others as worse. You try to feel better about yourself, trying to perceive others as worse. But there is this phenomenon of mirroring that we also learn uh, in, uh, in my work, uh, like uh, they also teach my students, which uh, basically, paradoxically, when you try to perceive others as worse, it kind of turns back and you perceive yourself worse than you that you were trying to. So it's uh, it goes through this like, do you feel a little bit empty at certain point? And then you start feeling actually all these things that you that you perceive to others, you try to like think negatively about them and judgment. Uh, funny enough, they turn back to you because we, we have a lot of mirroring, but it's subtle, subtle. We don't realize how much we mirror uh, other people around us. And uh, of course, this is... Um, a big subject by itself but what i wanted to say about vulnerability is that we try to so if you look at this 
So, so you, I, we're, we're going to be able to see it on the video replay, but people that are listening on Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts, and other you know podcast platforms. Are- okay, okay. So I will describe it. So you can imagine three circles, and in the middle circle you have your vulnerability, your your, your yourself, your real self, your genuine self, uh, which means you go for what you feel like, you go for what you want. You can be. Uh, you can be weak. you can show your weakness, but you can also show your more uh, your more unique your more unique strength. I would say because you can allow yourself to be innovative. Which uh, otherwise, if you if you were not vulnerable, it would uh, it wouldn't be allowed because you would feel the judgment of people. Always. Have you show it to uh, us one more time. So, you uh, when you're vulnerable, can you show it to the camera one more time. Yeah, sure, but I'm I think it needs to get mirrored as well. Um, so, I think it looks perfect. Isolation, protection, self, and yeah. the vulnerable is in the inside. So you are, you're vulnerable there in the inside. Yeah. And you just, uh, you know, you, you feel that you want to be in that middle place between protection and self. The thing is like when you're vulnerable, you're not only just showing to people your weakness. You, as I said, you have your innovation, you have your passion, all of those things, you're taking risks just by, by putting them out there. So they make you vulnerable. But everything everything good, everything magic in life, uh, it comes from a place of you being vulnerable. You can't really uh, be in that place with uh, while protecting yourself. It's just like uh, the, the decisions of conscious risk for the sake of uh, basically doing, being in your purpose is a huge thing for, for, for a human. It's a That's huge thing that we that we don't that we don't realize that we don't that we neglect. So uh, you have these areas, and what what people try to do is that if you go too much into protection, they start feeling like empty. They start feeling not so not so things are not so meaningful because protection. What it does is like it protects us from all the negative feelings or the things that we that we interpret as negative or what we learned to see as negative, which is what embarrassment. Uh, judgment, uh, blame, or uh, negative responsibility, uh, rejection. So it protects us from those occasions, but it also uh, keeps us away from all the good stuff, uh, from excitement, from, uh, from um, you know, like um, fun, like creative, creative um, solutions in our life, creative moments with ourselves, flow, uh, being in, feeling passion, Falling in love is heavily, heavily dependent on that, which is also a subject that people don't really uh, explore these days uh, from that direction. Connecting genuinely with someone, it requires both sides' vulnerability. It cannot happen otherwise. So so the, the, the reason why I'm saying this is that if people try to be somewhere in the middle, because they end up like feeling, oh, protecting doesn't feel that meaningful, then the other one feels too scary. And they try to be somewhere in the middle, but this doesn't work for long. So they end up slowly moving more and more into uh, the zone of protection. You can't be just one way in, one way out, trying to be like kind of safe and kind of emotionally free and kind of emotionally and having intense and, and fulfilling emotions. You, you can't really do that. The, the other side, the out of that protection, if you get too deep in that protection, and that was one of the biggest mistakes uh, I've seen and uh, like was kind of like a, a little bit of a, an educational crime when it comes to the people from the pickup community that they were supporting the idea of forcing yourself into the, the interaction, the comfortable situations. 
So I was lucky because when I started exploring that that uh, that place with like uh, I called approaching people in there in the street or in the parties and just putting myself in situations that were feeling like uncomfortable socially, uh, I was doing it from a lot of self exploration and it was coming as like there was this fear, this anxiety, but there was also excitement. So at the end of the day, I wasn't really really pushing myself. I didn't feel like this is my obligation to do that. But in the world of the pickup community. There is huge sense of obligation. And it also touched me, like after doing it for two years, started identifying with this thing, with my ability to meet new people and girls in the streets and, and all that stuff. I started identifying with it. So after a certain point, it wasn't coming from the same place for a big period. It was coming out of me feeling obligated to keep practicing this or, or keep doing this or, or trying to get better at it uh, as an obligation to my persona, if that makes sense. So I was too long into it. And in that community, this mentality exists a lot that people are measuring somebody's self-worth and with how many women he sleeps or how many, how, how good he is in meeting someone in the street and, pull, and and getting home with her. And so there were a lot of those mentalities. Fortunately, I wasn't heavily influenced by that community. Uh, in my early years, I was mostly hanging out with few people, but still doing that for a long time it was good enough to put me in that space and to give me a taste of that space now there were people who were getting way more than a taste who were ruining their lives just because of that approach because after pushing yourself more and more despite you being in a zone of protection because what what is what you're doing when you're in protection when you feel anxiety when you feel oh i cannot do this i don't want to do this you don't want to put yourself in a vulnerable position because you're afraid you're going to get hurt, traumatized. Now, when this doesn't get approached properly uh, in a healthy way the, way, the way we do it now, and you just push yourself into it, hoping that you will get desensitized, which was, in parentheses, a method that they used to do for PTSD, but it was quite an uh, unsuccessful one. Uh, you move yourself further and further into that zone of protection. Basically, you reinforce your protection instead of doing the, the opposite. You basically give yourself small, small traumas instead of actually allowing yourself to process the traumas. With result, as you step deeper and deeper in that protection, you step in the other zone that I draw in the paper, which I call isolation. They're basically very correlated. It's basically the same thing, just in a deeper, deeper, uh, just in bigger depth. Isolation is when you're so much into that that you either isolate yourself physically socially you just you, i can't handle it anymore you just close up you just quit or uh you isolate yourself emotionally and that was a place uh, emotional place that a lot of people have been back in the day we used to call them jaded what uh the person you would call jaded in the in the community would be somebody who was doing that for so long but had somehow turned up to be like a robot like uh people managing to uh, to stop feeling anxious, they would also manage to stop feeling anything. You know I'm what, talking about... You know what that does, Lazarus? That suppresses creativity. And then, that suppresses everything. And, and that then, suppresses everything. And then when someone goes up and tries to, to interact with someone and there's no connection, there's no chemistry, there's no spark, there's no nothing... They're wondering why that is. They're wondering, wait, did I do something wrong? Do I need to go and talk to 10 more people? Do I need to go and hire another coach or read another book or watch another video? Because they've suppressed all of these emotions that have 
disabled them from being present in the moment and really showing up with their natural self, their authentic self. It's insane. It's insane, Dave, because it's like this suppresses literally the way I used to call it when I realized it, I used to call it social and emotional disability. It was uh, a disability that uh, like I really like the, the, the hardest cases I've gotten in through this job, like three and a half years now uh, doing this full time. The hardest cases I got was people who had been in that space uh, following that approach for more than uh, six to eight years. The hardest cases, uh, because like I can get somebody who is a completely uh, introverted, has no experience. I'm, I'm talking like no experience, literally socially and sexually virgin, having a few friends all his life and not really being open to people. And, or somebody who has like a very intense, very negative traumatic experience in childhood, it would be easier from somebody who spent eight years putting himself in social situations that he uh, he was getting traumatized basically again and again, stubbornly without realizing that something is not going right. And uh, that is hard. That is very hard because there is so many layers that have been created mm. and uh, there are so many places that this has been kind of like spread in his uh, self-perception and work perception. Very can, hard. Can, can we just flow into authentic expression for a second? Because you made a quote in one of your posts in Project Lazarus in the South Love Army. And the quote was, your real expression is nothing more than energy freely flowing out of your body. It is who you are manifesting your desires and purpose in action. It is your truth, your essence, your soul taking a material form. So what does that mean? And, and is there a connection there with what we've been talking about? Big connection. Um, so the expression is, uh, is not just talking, it's not just saying the truth. Because the truth is not something that you say in words. You never say the truth in words. You say the truth with your whole being, actions, behaviors, small, small expressions of your face. Your expression is, uh, is not one thing or two, it's uh, everything together. If we, if we talk about it in its totality. So, you can see it as, uh, as this congruent flow of you feeling good being yourself. When you feel good being yourself, an intuitive uh, decision or anything you feel like doing, any desire, it just it gets followed by an action. Every desire becomes an intention. Every intention becomes an action. This is, uh, this is the natural way of things. You feel one with yourself. You don't feel in conflict. Uh, that is the place that we ideally want to be, uh, especially uh, since we we realize that the other the other side is just empty, like the other direction. That on the other side there is nothing, just empty. Just we're just gonna go in cycles of 
fear and protection and that's basically when you're when you're not honest when you're not when you're when you're closing up when you're trying to um, portray or or show something that it doesn't feel uh, 100% you now this could come in a in a form of you uh, being saying something about yourself that is not really accurate trying to show something um, to people that you believe is their, the, the thing they want to see. Uh, being in a, like, this can go deep. This, it could be being in a, in a lifestyle that you don't, that you don't like, like to be, uh, being in a job that you don't enjoy, um, hanging out with people that you don't respect and appreciate. Uh, eating food that you don't really, um, again, enjoy and appreciate. So it's like, it's a whole, it's a whole range of things that your expression, it doesn't stop in one thing. It doesn't stop in like you having something to say to someone and you holding back from saying it. So when I was writing in this post, I meant the whole range of things. So you're, you can, you can see it of like, if you put two people in a room, uh, actually, if you put Two people in a room in two different periods of time so you put the one person for a month in that room and, and you have a camera in the corner and then you put another, the other person in a month for that room and you have a camera in the corner in the same corner you will uh and then you you take the, the videos from those two people living in a room for a month and you 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 speed them up you put them in four times five times eight times you're gonna see uh a movement in the space and the more you speed them up the more this movement is going to be abstract and it's going to feel like like a vibration just like some something moving and basically it's going to be the the trails of it mostly and the one person in the same exact room the one person would have completely different frequency completely different vibration than the other person because the sum of the actions of that person throughout this month are basically getting manifested in this in this form of movement. This form of movement will have a pattern, will be a frequency. That person will, will move his leg in a frequency. That person will go to the toilet in a frequency. But when you see in a macro level, you see that all of those patterns kind of start getting a frequency. It's the, it's the, so the one person will, will be more at ease, the other person will be less at ease. The one person will be you know, uh, cal more calm, the other person will be less calm. You're going to see those patterns. And it's not that calm is good and, and uh, more, um, I don't know, like uh, not calm is bad, but it's just like the, the energy doesn't get like very well understood lately. Uh, still, I mean, it, I think it gets better than before from, from most people. It's a subject that people start being open to it. But it's not this magical weird thing. It's something that you feel just because it's the sum of everything. So you cannot really, with your linear mind, understand it. But uh, when we approach opening somebody up to uh, real, to to expression, to flow, uh, we don't do it just with from one side of things. So I do. I I approach it from many different sides of things. Can I, so I approach. That's yeah. a quick question. Is there a difference between drift and flow? And if so, what is it? What do you mean drift? Where you're just kind of drifting or you're flowing? Flow is per so flow has purpose. 
flow uh, flow has connections. So in flow, you're connected. Uh, in flow, you feel yeah, you feel you, you feel you're in, on a path. In uh, when you has a different definition for flow. I know one of my first mentors, Davide, was on the podcast a few episodes ago. So that flow is the intersection, right, of surrender and discipline. Yeah, yeah, you, I would, I would like that. I, I like that as definition. Generally, like it, it's, uh, it's aligned to what I'm saying. Basically, mm-hmm. flow has this feeling of I'm on a path, but I'm allowing things to move me there. I, I, I focus on my path. I don't focus on how I am doing it. I'm not, I'm not setting a certain set of, exp- I'm, I'm not, I'm not setting expectations. I'm not into this like uh, set of rules that they have from my past dedicating how I'm going to do things. It has surrender, but you also feel this strong sense of purpose. And you have also another um, uh, quite, um, you know, one of the most uh, interesting phenomenons of human psyche for me is the, the phenomenon of faith. So people don't really um, look into that as well. It's another subject, but faith is uh, basically the, if you see it from an individual perspective, it's the power of manifesting things in the future. But if you realize that that individual is part of the whole, faith is simply a calling of your, uh, of what you're meant to be, what's the best for you, what, what what's your, um, place in this world but we see it opposite because we see it in the individualistic so we believe like faith is just this like mind game of us trying to kind of reach a place or I don't know like also many people connected to, to the religious perception of God but uh, the, religious, the religious perception of God is very limited the way it has gotten delivered and if you yeah. see, if you if you replace that idea of God with everything, this interconnected existence that you're experiencing, then uh, there are certain feelings or signals, let's call them, that they don't seem to come from only from inside. So uh, faith is one of them. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there because we can you can come back on the podcast. Um, in, in, in a later date, and we can dive into that a little bit deeper. Um, I want to go back for a second because you were talking about the, the room, and, and I remember you uh, on a podcast with Ruse talking about a dark room retreat. So do you still uh, use this dark room retreat in your coaching? Yeah, definitely. Offer it and, and what exactly is it? Tell me more. So the dark, the dark room retreat is basically a very intense uh, experience of uh, introspection, I would call it. Uh, the way I use it for myself, it's a, it's a very good way to reconnect with, uh, with what's meaningful. Because uh, throughout we day, our days, we go through defenses. No matter how much, like, you might go like, we, we might do a lot of work in opening up. You might uh, do a lot of introspection in your daily life which helps extremely much and it can help you stay connected with what matters and your purpose but there is um, situations that in a very subtle way 
your purpose kind of fades away or you, you 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 don't remember it as much you, you lose that that connection to it and uh, the dark room retreat is an amazing place uh, an amazing way to uh, confront whatever is blurring your vision you see uh, when i did this first time it was 48 hours you basically create an environment that you um, you don't have you it's so dark it's pitch black that you don't have awareness like the ability to see if it's day or night outside so fully dark i can't see you can have a mask so you can go to the toilet or if you have a toilet that is connected to the room you can do that as well now the technical stuff but in the first uh and you only like i did it without food so i did it only with water and I did it with like uh, only sleep and meditation. That was the two activities that I could do. Sleep, meditation. And there are so many hours that you feel, actually the, the, the one hour goes like way slower than it goes usually. You don't have something to, to occupy your mind. So it's, it's, it's you and yourself. There is nowhere to go. And um, you know, that might- Nowhere to escape to. Nowhere to escape to, nowhere to escape to. You can, you can think as much as you want. You, you, you will start looping. You will start going in cycles. Most of us are looking for an escape in our lives. And now with social media, we can escape really quickly with validation. Yeah, it's social media, games, even friends. People, people escape by talking to friends. And even in the self-development, uh, you can escape by, by thinking about self-development. Mm. You, you see? So... The, the emotional, the real emotional experience, the, the, what, what is not escape is like what, what's vulnerable, what's, what's, what's emotional. Go there. Those experiences are, are feeling tired, tiring. I do in my coaching, I do, uh, my sessions are one and a half hour. People are getting drained as fuck from that. It's one and a half hour of doing that. And imagine we have so many hours in our day. One and a half hour, is, it's, it's huge for people. To be to be connected, to be emotional, to be to be confronting, to, to to confront themselves, what's meaningful. Your mind tries to run away. You see, there are so many defenses that our mind creates uh, to escape and to run away. Sometimes people just don't can't focus, like have a feeling hard hard to focus. Guess what this is? It's the defense. Sometimes they they just open different subjects. Sometimes they get stuck in rational manifestations of the thing, like excuses, whatever. Those are just, that's trying to run away from it. So in the dark room, you can do that as much as you want. There is nowhere to go. And uh, in my, the first time I tried with this 48 hours, I basically confronted a lot my taking responsibility for my future. And it was a little bit before I actually came up to, it popped to me this vision of the Project Lazarus. Uh, it's an interesting story because I will, it really got bo uh, born in that uh, dark room. Uh, in the, it was the second day. Uh, I, I felt like I was there for weeks, man. I felt like it was super long. It was like, I, I don't know. I had completely let go of this expectation that, okay, it's going to end at some point. I, I didn't know if it's day, if it's night, how many hours have I spent there. It was just like, I no idea. And uh, imagine being in jail 
or being yeah, in isolation of jail, or being or being captured and being held hostage as a prisoner. Hmm. But but the thing is like there. There was not even these things. There was not lovely, like even somebody who put me there. I put me there and just me and myself. So in the second day, I started seeing this very clear theme of me escaping the responsibility for my future. And that's when uh, purpose started to um, show itself to me in the, in the most clearest form that I have ever seen. Because I've been working years already into coaching and it was something that really called me i never i never tried to be a coach it just came to me uh actually in the beginning i was perceiving it as something bad i'm doing so when i left greece and i went to to start to to, to start coaching with social prime i was perceiving it as like basically escaping my only shot in making a decent career because i saw university as my out uh, my, my way to make a decent career and I was feeling like I was so fascinated about that stuff I actually went out without any money I had I had no money uh, We I had no really I, I didn't have a student who would pay for me I, w- I went there hitchhiking from Greece to Budapest basically okay. and we were you know it just started from, from zero and I didn't really looking for it I, I saw it initially as an escape that it was running away from, from university. That's how I identified in my mind. But it was so uh, attractive to me that many times I tried to leave from coaching. I tried to like quit and start another business. I tried to do like a lot of stuff. But it was always, it felt more meaningful that they would always realize that, okay, that's, that it's not going to replace it. And I would always come back to, the, to this place of trying to find another way to uh, to put my focus and uh, efforts and build something more sustainable or more uh, as I was as I was expecting it to be. That wasn't the real issue, though. That well, in that time in that uh, dark room, I went back to the age of like being in elementary school and avoiding uh, homework up to the last moment. Mm. And then feeling that uh, when I would um, do the homework, it would be like this, like, you know, this last moment that I was actually failing and I was started perceiving uh, that whatever it is, uh, I should postpone it and uh, whatever I do in my life, which was cool, I guess, or that was what it was passed to me, that that's the main purpose you have now. It's failing and I supposed to focus on something else. And I saw this clear pattern correlation and uh, it was very emotional to me. So usually when something, when you see something like that, it's emotional to you because normally when you, when we put it out, it's just like some random fact. When it's emotional to you, it means there is something there. Ding, ding, ding. It's like a little alarm. You look there and it was very emotional to me. So I started experiencing it and I started crying into it and releasing. And it was like so clear that it threw me back throughout all my years of life. And I saw in many occasions how I was doing the same exact thing with, with work, with, uh, studies, with work, with, uh, with hobbies, with anything that I would put my attention to and that would, it would draw me to like occupy myself with it, sooner or later, I would start perceive it as something that I have to find another path from. Or if it makes sense, as something that it's what I supposed to do, but 
I'm trying to, to find something else. I cannot, I don't commit 100%. I try to find something else to, um, to occupy myself that would make me more, uh, feeling more free. Because the thing that's supposed to be my main, my main responsibility to life or my main commitment, it had this correlating feeling of me being trapped into this, oh, I have the homework and I don't do the homework. I just postponed the homework in the last moment and it was feeling like I was suffocating to be feeling trapped which was, I could uh, identify it in my elementary school years. And after that, as, a, as a, I kind of like grieved for it, I, I felt a lot of grief for the lost time. I felt that even stepping into coaching, which was I was deep into coaching at the time, I had my mentorship, which I was developing throughout the year. And I was really meticulous about designing it and, and bringing the right people into it and all that. So I was really deep into it. I was doing work basically full time. Still, I realized in that dark room, that moment of like intense emotional uh, breakthrough that I wasn't giving 100%. And especially, I wasn't committing for building a future on it. I wasn't looking the future. I was just doing what made sense in front of me. But as soon as I looked the future, uh, Dave, I, it was incredible what I saw. I, I, I looked at the future and I saw what's really meaningful to me to build out of it. And this came only after I, I grieved for the lost time and I grieved for, the, for, for all of it. I just had like sometimes that I cried inside that dark room. And then I looked in the future and I was like, okay, I see now. And then a bunch of things started coming and the following days it started coming. So I felt the most purposeful I had been. Uh, I felt the most clear I had been on what, I, what I'm supposed to do. And soon after I had another experience that it felt like that was meant to be. That was like, I'm meant to do this work. I'm meant to be this. I'm not meant to try to find another way to make my income or make my money. That's irrelevant from income. That's, that's irrelevant from everything. It's just, this is what I'm supposed to bring to the world. And I accept it and then and embrace it. And then it, it starts flourishing. So Darkroom for me was a very, very, very good tool to uh, confront what you are uh, basically confront your defenses, confront what you're ba what basically holds you from seeing what you're meant to do, from seeing what is meaningful to you at least if it's not something that big as the thing that I explained. And the way I use it in the programs, I use it after the time travel actually, and I find it to have the best effect after somebody has uh, reached that place. It gets a, it's a really good experience of, of self love and uh, what happens usually after the time travel. People are kind of in that space of self-love and acceptance and you know we have effects like they see things more vividly they're more like so we, there are all those things after time travels but the best thing is like after they establish this this glimpse of, con of good connection with themselves and then they 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 get into that dark room uh there are a lot of things that get processed there and i see that they have way more uh chances to to discover this uh this strong connection with themselves that required to, to to step into purpose or or at least to to uh, to face from a healthy place their obstacles their their blockages so uh, i picked that moment to to do the time travel it's also a very, a very pivotal experience of my of my uh let's say project lazarus experience and as a as a transformative experience because after it we take a big shift in the character of the program so my program has three phases. The first phase is uh, very uh, intense um, 
work, inner work, we do, we, 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 we develop a practice for every student individually that are based on introspection, meditation, and breath work, where we step into uh, diving deeper and deeper. We have all those sessions that I, that I guide him through deep things that he cannot guide through himself or that he, he can't see really, and we get breakthroughs there, leading to the time travel, going deep into trauma work and stepping also in a very deep self-love connection with himself, stepping in the, in, the, in the last piece of introspection of the dark room that just like takes out left obstacles and kind of like reconsolidates the whole thing. And then we take a big shift in the program that we don't work with pain as much as we did in the first month because we work with a lot of pain in the first month. We work with a lot of obstacles. So now we step into uh, appreciation. We start seeing the person's gifts. And then we start stepping also in the outside world and we start going into uh, sessions outside with people where, where he's finally, uh, if, if the work happens properly, he's finally ready to start feeling other people. And which I, which I call empathy. And then there's a huge chapter. Empathy is a huge thing by itself, which we use as a platform for him to start understanding like real connection, real attraction, uh, how he actually uh, can find acceptance for, for himself in an interaction, how the other person can, uh, can accept him, how he, he can allow himself to be vulnerable and uh, also help other people to be vulnerable with him. So all of those things happen after this shift. And then the third phase is basically reconsolidating everything and pretty much helping him to be his own coach and help others as well. So that's in a nutshell the, the main curriculum of my of my work now. And the darkroom is a pretty uh, pivotal experience of it. So now that people know a little bit about what you do with your students and they've heard about Project Lazarus, you've embarked on this new journey taking over the real masculine as Ruse has taken off into the wind. And what does that mean to you? Yeah, so when it comes to the real masculine, um, so I plan to put a post uh, these days and I might, uh, I might finish it today, uh, explaining what my vision is for it, how I see it. It was quite a big thing for me since we were about to work with Ruse together and it was kind of like, uh, having him doing this part, but since I since I took the responsibility for it and and, uh, and which I embrace, I realized that what feels meaningful to me for a group because the second time I'm in administration of uh, growing, I'm also in administration of self love army, but this is the second time I'm like I'm having a group to be like kind of responsible for it, and the first one was uh, when we had uh, social prime with uh, with the guys. And uh, I realized that I don't feel the same things that I used to feel being meaningful to have a, a group, a community for, for, for uh, people who are aligned to, to my work. So I see it as, um, as a bigger thing than I used to. So you see in the, in the self-development space and generally the space of uh, people doing uh, marketing, communities like Facebook groups, are usually considered as an expansion of, or as an alternative of um, a mail list. They're usually considered as a marketing real estate. Sales funnel. Uh, similar, yeah, exactly. Like, like a place that you can sell your stuff, okay? And something didn't sit right with me in this idea. Uh, indeed, uh, when you have, a, I, 
personally, for my students and for my for my work so far, I didn't plan to have a, a group or a place to, to sell my stuff. I I have people sending me people from network. Also, uh, the, the people who work with me usually they send uh, they send others to work with me, and I take only three people a month. So, for me, putting that effort just for marketing was not worth it. And um, generally, I'm a little bit adverse lately in doing things just for marketing. I, I start to feel like quite uh, that this doesn't doesn't fill my boat. And I would um, if I if it was just for marketing, I would prefer to do something else. So anything I do that will bring the word out, it has to feel meaningful. Like this podcast or like speaking to people online, it feels like it has an essence to it. And I don't do it as just okay, let's put something out like an, uh, to to advertise and stuff. Then I'm like, so what's meaningful for this? What is what is actually meaningful? And uh, I think Ruse was also aligned to that. He was actually doing he was actually doing something that's meaningful. That's why I felt also compelled to continue part of his work and to not uh, just recreate everything from the beginning, uh, because I believe he put a lot of soul in that group and he put a lot of of his passion into it and it was very transparent and honest. Uh, but for me, I feel inclined to make something that's more interactive as a community, something that I haven't seen around. And the main idea for that, it really depends if people would, li- would like that or would be engaged enough to, to support that. A main idea for that is what I, what I plan to prepare uh, as um, something that I, that I will call healing cycles. So the healing circles like, is going to be uh, basically group uh, group coaching sessions that there will be provided to the group for uh, for in a donation based manner. So let's say imagine six people and one facilitator, and then the people can get coached in a group setup. Uh, people can do guided meditations, or they can work one on one, or just do group exercises. Uh, or they can do a circling, which basically opening up to each other all together. So there are a lot of different sessions that, that they can do. I have already some that I plan to start doing as leading this uh, kind of movement. And then I plan to bring also other people who want to maybe new coaches or people who want to just help and they like helping others to come in voluntarily as facilitators. And then people will be able to pay in the end of the session as a donation. So uh, depending on how, how, how everyone anyone feels, every individual feels this helps him, he can give a donation and part of that donation can be go to can be going to the facilitator and the big part, the biggest part of the donation, I want to have it in a in a common account, like a group account, basically. And then I want to make votes of how to use that money. So that's the that's the main idea that the group can have actually some uh, way to govern uh, something a little bit more meaningful. So let's say we they, they get gathered some money. First of all, the group the group sessions will bring value. So people who will pay will be people will will feel inspired to pay because they feel they got value. So that's that's a good thing. And then the money, which uh, instead of going to one authority like a coach or uh, the, the a brand they can go to the group itself or at least like uh, the engaged part of the group who will vote on if they want maybe to, to, to buy a course with that money or maybe to send some of those people to uh, Vipassana retreat and just pay for the expenses or to send... Uh, Vipassana is free, by the way. It's donation-based. 
No, no, for the expenses of the Vipassana, but imagine like somebody you pay for his flights, you pay for his, uh, yeah, maybe like any other expenses that he has. Um, because you can, you know, because it's donation based then you can send more people. Uh, or maybe you can send like a few people to a, to a paid coaching uh, session. So maybe you can send them to an event or maybe you can uh, bring some speaker who would want basically compensation to come and, and speak to the group or whatever, like some bigger names that it wouldn't, because not now we're, we're, we're working together, but there are people who have like a huge audience and uh, people would want to listen to them, but they wouldn't come to, to speak to an audience except if they have like an incentive like marketing or money. So really they can be, of course, it's just like a, rough, a draft idea and in the end, you can we can end up just like redistributing uh, money or just like buying something uh, like a platform and then maybe using it based on what people vote. But um, it feels to me way more meaningful than just the usual uh, do something, build a service. That's not like the usual service for me. And personally, I think I'm good enough with what I'm doing with the, with the mentoring. I don't plan to sell uh, any other service anytime soon. Maybe I will make a small course for people who want to learn the some some methods and some techniques, apply them themselves, and they don't uh, they don't have the time or the resources or the the commitment to do to get coaching from someone. But other than that, I don't plan to make this like list of services. Uh, there is also one more that uh, that, I, that I that I was offering to the student the Rue students, which was just a standalone time travel. We'll see how this will will continue, but making group coachings and um, big uh, masterminds and stuff like that—it's not really my my thing that I plan to do. I don't feel very called to it. Uh, my vision is that I will gather enough money up to 2022 when I finish with my uh, with my uh, mentis goal. Uh, okay, so we're gonna dive into first. Um, how can they reach out to you, Lazarus? So for now, uh, people can just contact me on Facebook. So they can they can send me a message. Anyone interested to to talk or to learn more about that stuff? I'm pretty open. Uh, we can uh, we can have a chat and then we can jump in a call. Uh, I'm, it's a little bit busy, so I will send a scheduler that people can can find open spots probably like in uh, next or the week after. But uh, yeah, it's pretty straightforward and. Uh, also, the way that I do that I do this because I only take on uh, helping people who I really believe I can help, and I believe there is the right fit. Uh, always, there is uh, a process that I have designed for people to know that okay, this is a good fit for me, and I can be certain guarantee that okay, this is going to be uh, impactful. Which uh, the process is basically like a session that they do with me, through which I guide them, and uh, I figure some stuff out and I ask them some questions and I guide them experientially also to see that we can do emotional guidance together. And then there is also a long form that they feel when they want to, to read to, when they're interested to enroll in the men, uh, mentorship. And then I review that form and it's very detailed stuff that, that that's the process I follow. So uh, either somebody is interested in mentorship or looking for a mentor uh, or at least this type of heavy mentorship or somebody who just wants to have a chat and, and get to know what I'm doing or wants to see maybe he has a specific issue and wants to ask me if uh, if what what he should do. Maybe I can direct him to some other codes that I endorse. Uh, feel free to just send me a message on Facebook and just we'll, we'll get it from there. Cool. And the final question, 
that I ask all my guests on this podcast, how do you want your business and also your relationship or dating life to evolve over the next year? So the way I envision this is that, uh, I was about to say before, the way I envision this is that uh, after 2022, I want to have gathered the funds uh, to open to open a retreat center. So uh, my goal is to make a place that uh, is going to be the perfect setup for transformation. I don't want to do uh, I, I don't want to compromise at this. So my 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 goal is to gather uh, in the, the funds at the up to that point and. Um, which I plan to do with uh, parcel coaching itself and investments and um, like buy the property and build the, the place. Maybe not, I don't know, like if I find something that, uh, that works for, for my requirements and then allow people to come in and stay for months uh, in an environment of um, like experiential work like the one we are doing already but in a way more immersive manner because we used to run immersions that they were like two weeks we were renting airbnbs uh, but it wasn't for me the, the the ideal what i plan to do is basically 10 room uh like villa that will be in a in a very well strategic spot with access to social exposure and access to nature uh three-month retreats or like long-term retreats uh people stay there and they just because w w the thing we were happening that really good thing that was happening in the immersion it wasn't happening as much now in the mentorship even though i have created the mentorship as experiential as i can is that people don't uh change environment they don't get this experience that they just like get completely disconnected out of nowhere from everything they can see this as a third person view of themselves uh, I don't know if you if you understand what I mean because you are also traveling for a while. I was also traveling for a while, and for many people, like for for us, it's kind of like usual now. But for many people, it isn't, and it's really hitting someone when he hasn't lived home for a while, and then he steps out of it and realizes, oh, this is not what 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 how every everywhere is. So the travel factor is quite important to me, or going and getting immersed in a new environment with all the the signal, the, the, the sensations and the inputs and the people you meet. And the, it's, it's all like completely new, uh, more, more, a better place for me to create a transformative experience. And uh, lack of already now. Lack yeah. of stability is a very interesting one because when you are in one place, you're able to dive deep into yourself. There are certain things that are, can be diminished in terms of worries. Okay, exactly. but you can also get caught in this trap of complacency and yeah. traveling around the world. I went to 17 cities in 14 months and it was just such an immersive experience of, in one sense, survival, but in another sense of freedom. Yeah, yeah. And I miss that a lot. I miss that a lot. But imagine now in my, my mentorship, I send people away. So uh, that's another funny pivotal experience in the second in the second phase. After, after I finished the second phase, which is all about like connecting to people and teaching empathy and diving deep, like diving deeper in the, the gifts of someone, not only the pain. Um, and uh, they explore a lot of that stuff and a lot of uh, 
social stuff and a lot of dating stuff. And it's like, uh, in the end of the month, I send them away to a hostel for three days. Uh, and this is a little bit, this was a little bit harder this month with Corona, but uh, what, what we're basically doing is that they go to a hostel to a different country and they stay in that hostel for at least three days and it's, it's guided to not have any, any uh, goal there. But they are in a social environment in a completely new place, a new, new country, and they can't have space or time just being by themselves, really. Ah, they can go for, for works and they go to nature and stuff like that. But, but what the, what the, what the uh, instruction is, is that they go there in, in the middle of a very big city in a hostel where it's always crowded, always people, always they go out, they have people, they go, they go in the hostel, they have people. And they start seeing without, without any goal, any expectations, nothing. And they start seeing all the things that they learned throughout the month just appearing naturally to them. And it is for me a big, really good, uh, again, like consolidating experience that it just brings together the whole thing, uh, which I wouldn't, like, it's, I believe it's a crucial part. If I could do it for longer, I would do it for longer. Like if, if I could send people, like the thing is that with the immersion was different because we were meeting with them, right? We were also in that country. Uh, I don't know. Send them off to Bangkok for a few months. They'll be fine. Yeah. So if I could send people for like a bigger adventure, I would do that. But um, it's, it's not the, the easiest thing to do like uh, when you're trying to do it in guidance. But sometimes some people, when we were there, willing to do that, then I would give them instructions, you know, like, let's do that. Lazarus. This was deep. This was amazing. Guys, Lazarus talked about a donation-based payment for his group. And if anyone is still listening, um, I just want to open the door as well to um, accepting donations for this podcast. Um, you can make donations on Anchor uh, to the Dave Godivall podcast. And this is not going to be the last time that we bring Lazarus Kalfas on as a guest. So thank you so much for joining us. And that's going to be it for now. Thank you for having me, Dave. And we talk soon, man. Very Thanks well. for listening, guys. All Take right. care.